Welcome to the C-Cup podcast, brought to you by the BJA. Welcome to the C-Cup podcast. My name is Eleanor Carter, trainee editor of C-Cup, and today I'll be talking to Dr. Richard Griffiths, consultant in anaesthesia at Peterborough and Stanford NHS Trust, and immediate past honorary secretary of the AAGBI. Welcome, Dr. Griffiths. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you very much for introducing me. Today we'll be discussing Dr Griffith's article, Frailty and Anesthesia, What We Need to Know, which is published in the December edition of CCUP. This is particularly relevant as the UK population is ageing with increasing numbers of older patients with complex needs undergoing surgery. However, unfortunately, this frail population has frequently been overlooked in healthcare policy and research. However, recent publications have highlighted the unique needs of frail patients, and these include reports by NC Plod and the recent hip fracture anaesthetic sprint audit of practice. So today we will review the main points of the articles, review some of this recent research, and ask practically what can this do to improve surgical outcomes in frail patients. So to start off with, Dr Griffiths, could you explain to me what exactly is meant by frailty? The, the exact definition, I think I was going to go for a medical one, would be a, a decrement in physiological systems, a global decrement. If you actually look at um, the dictionary definition of it, if something is frail, and you can think of anything being frail like um, a piece of china, a piece of wood, it would break very easily. Um, and I think you can imagine that as the patients that we're dealing with we've got physiological systems which are probably just about okay but when you stress them they are likely to break and become more delicate so that's a sort of simplistic way of looking at it unfortunately the older I'm going to say older persons geriatric medicine a community has done an awful lot of work on this and, and we're just really scratching at the surface of it. But they have recognised frailty for probably 10 or 15 years. Uh, and there are, there are various models. Uh, I think we recognise it um, as well. But unfortunately, we don't really seem to know what to do about it or how to categorise it. So. What I try and imagine for myself is I always give examples of maybe your relatives that you've had or you've, you see your grandparents or your friends and you eventually see as people do age um, that maybe they don't quite walk to the shops as they used to. Someone else will do the shopping for them. Um, they're confined maybe to one or two rooms in the house. And I think that is an example of someone getting frailer but it's very very difficult to define it and you've mentioned there that there are tools that we can use to uh, try and grade frailty have these got any utility in the clinical environment or are they really purely for research purposes yeah that, that, that's a very good question because i think i mean i, I wanted this article to, to be out there because i wanted it to be reasonably um i'm, I'm not going to say at least as simple but i think we're very practical uh, specialty. You want something which is very practical that you can identify on a ward or in an assessment clinic that will highlight a patient who may need something's doing as well as just having the operation and the anaesthesia in order to have a better outcome. So if you look at the frailty literature, and I mentioned it briefly, there are basically two main models. 
the first model, the deficit, well, the deficit accumulation model, looks at lots and lots and lots of different physiological variables and is actually pretty complex. Um, if you look at the uh, phenotype, it's actually much simpler. And I think that the scale that I ch I've chosen in the article, I chose it simply because there's an iPod and an iPad app, which you can download. And in fact, we use it, and I have used it clinically, called the Edmonton Frail Scale. It's interesting that quite a lot of this research comes from Canada, and there are various names which keep propping up. Rockwood, Fried uh, are the main uh, researchers. But the Edmonton Frail Scale is something which you can do in a two or three minutes. You can do it on a ward. You can do it in an assessment clinic. I actually, as a sort of tip, find that my fingers are too big for an iPhone, although I haven't got one of those mm -hmm. new iPhones, one of those giant ones. Uh, but a mini iPad is ideal for it because there are various things that the patient has to do on your iPad, one of them drawing a clock face, which I think most of you will remember from medicine, it was still quite a good test of cognitive function. Mm -hmm. And it also combines motor function as well. So there's a, it's called a get up and go test. So you just time the patient on the iPad and they get up and walk a few meters and sit down again. There's also some questions about general health and also there are some questions about psychological health as well. So if they're feeling depressed or sad, that's included. Um, and it takes about five minutes to do. For anaesthetists, if you haven't done it, download it and have a go at it because it's actually quite easy to do. And if I'm correct, this gives a score out of 17. Is there a score below which someone is frail or is it a continuous scale? It's basically, it's categorised into four. So if you're if you're naught to three, you're not frail at all. You're pretty okay. It's quite wide, the last scoring system. So it's four, you get slightly frail, averagely frail, and very frail actually is a wide band. It scores nine to 17. So you're very frail from only halfway down the scale, in fact. So there are just four categories. And, you know, to be not frail, not to three, um, you've, you've got to score pretty well to get into that. Um, and it also includes, of course, medications that the patients are on. I mean, your, your healthcare of the elderly doctors will tell you better than I, but it's something in the order of 50% of patients over 75 in the United Kingdom are on five or more prescription medications. It's, it, it's a lot. Okay, so, so practically you think this is something that we should perhaps as anaesthetists be doing in the clinical setting to assess our patients? Yeah, I, I do. I, I mean, obviously, as you, as you probably know, I've sort of been a bit of a champion of older people uh, for the last like 20 years. Um, I think because I, I think that as anaesthetists, we've got to have some responsibility for our actions, actually what we do. And, and maybe... Uh, I know I know plenty of people are very happy to stay within the operating theatre environment. But I think that is inevitably going to change. And I think what you're going to have to see is whatever technique you use uh, in order to anaesthetise a patient for, and, and I will split it up into elective and emergency operations. If you look at elective operations, specifically joint arthroplasties, uh, and, and there are lots of them. You look at the National Joint Registry, there's hundreds of thousands of them. So I think that we're going to have to start looking about what happens two or three days down the line. And I think what we do actually does affect that outcome. I also think that why the frailty thing may be important is that our liaison with our medical colleagues, I think, has got to get a little bit better. So that I know there are a couple of hospitals that do some 
pretty good assessment work beforehand so that the frailer patients can have services in place when they go home, as opposed to the situation which I think happens in a lot of hospitals, where you think, oh, crikey, uh, oh yeah, we've got this patient, pretty fail, uh, yeah, we've done the operation, um, oh, what do we do now? So I think there's a bit more joined up thinking to go on, and I, I honestly think that we, with the healthcare, the elderly people, and actually primary care, because if you think about what's in the article, in fact, those patients have all been referred by primary care. The elected patients have all been had a letter written to be referred to a hospital to have an operation. So actually, there probably is a little bit of onus on primary care to say, uh, yeah, we've done the Edmonton Frail Scale. And, and in fact, you know, if you were doing the designer study, to me, that would be that. I mean, I haven't done it. I don't think anyone's done it. It'd be a fantastic study to do where you could have a cohort of GPs doing the Edmonton Frail Scale for patients being referred to for, theater, for, for surgery. And then you could flag up social services, et cetera, et cetera. But you see, it's a bit of a comp, it's a bit of a bigger process than just us understanding physiological decline, which is really what it is. Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and as you said there, we'd certainly be interested to see what the evidence is for frailty making a difference on outcomes. And that's something else you've described in your paper, some of the, the research behind that. So I'd like to just go on and discuss a bit about that. Uh, you cite a paper by Dasgupta et al. Could you briefly describe for me the methodology and main findings of that paper? The Dasgupta one uh, was actually quite a small amount of patients. That's 125 patients. They chose a cutoff of 70 and above. Now, I suspect, I suspect, I mean, that was published seven or eight years ago. The research was done eight or nine years ago. You may choose 75 now. Only 100 odd patients. Most of the patients, it was done prospectively, and they used the Edmonton Frail Scale. So they used our little, it wasn't an app, but they used that to categorize patients. And what they found is the ones that were frailer had more complications, stayed in hospital longer, and were more difficult, you know, because they were more difficult to discharge. Now, what's interesting, and I think it's very relevant about that study is it was mainly orthopedics. And if you look at the bread and butter of most British um, hospitals, uh, the engine room, I think, is elective orthopaedics, isn't it? It's primary hip and knee arthroplasties, uh, which has been a tremendous success as an operation. But if you look at the average age now, it's creeping up and creeping up and creeping up. And of course, we do load more revisions. So it's relevant because it's orthopaedic operations. The second study, which uh, came from North America as well, and the other slightly south of Canada, so we're going to Baltimore now, <laughs> Okay, but again, still in the very North America, uh, Johns Hopkins, which I will mention oh, in, in this podcast because they're very, very into delirium research as well. Uh, that is also another very, very interesting topic. But they use more patients. They use over 500. Again, uh, similar sort of population. Uh, and they used basically a bigger um, deficits accumulation model to classify frailty, which I think is more complex. Uh, and that really is, I would say, a geriatric healthcare of the elderly research type tool. So it's more complex than the Edmonton Frail Scale, but it gives you the same answer. Okay. Now, interestingly, unfortunately, in quite a lot of these studies, they also did ASA. And ASA still is pretty good at actually predicting outcome as well as these frail scales. 
So although these fancy scales are better, you know, we're quite good at ASA. Well, I know people get it differently between each other, don't they? But ASA is still pretty good at doing it. And that's almost sort of surprising in the sense that it's quite a crude score. And as you say, there's variability. I mean, the, the, the problem I think that we should mention about all this is this is obviously electively type surgery. Of course, if you look, and I know, um, you know, in this country, we've done some fantastic stuff. The NCPOD reports, absolutely brilliant. But of course, if you look at the, the age-old problem one, which was 2010, which I will declare a conflict of interest, I was an assessor for that, a lot of those patients in that are emergency patients. So it's almost impossible in many ways to do some sort of frailty scoring Certainly, you couldn't do the Edmonton frail scale because you could never get a fractured femur patient to do the get up and go test because obviously it's pretty painful, isn't it? Having your hip fractured. So you couldn't do that. Um, but the translation from um, frailty assessment into emergency surgery is much more difficult, much more difficult than it is in the elective setting. So I think we all know that we have to almost split those, those two up the elective and the uh, um, emergency type pathways. Moved on there to talk a bit about some of the UK research that's been done in this area, um, and particularly an age-old problem that was the report published by NCPOD in, in 2010. Could you just briefly describe the methods they used and the, the sort of population they identified? Yeah, well, unfortunately, to qualify for most NCPOD reports, um, you're dead, which is sort of a uh, bit of a downer, really. But all the patients in that study had died from surgery and they were over the age of 80. Now, interestingly, the numbers from memory, something like 65% of those patients were from emergency surgery. So most of them emergency. Half of those emergency deaths were fractured neck of femurs and the other half were emergency laparotomies. So not many of our elective patients in that cohort had actually died. It was mainly emergency surgery. What that study highlighted really, I think, was the lack of involvement of physicians, specifically healthcare of the elderly physicians, in the treatment of these patients, in these emergency patients. Of course, things have changed a little bit because in, in hip fracture, we have a whole new specialty called orthogeriatrics. And I still don't think, I still don't think we have seen the translation into emergency surgery of uh, physicians. It's mainly, I still think, done by anaesthesia and by critical care outreach. Um, we haven't, you know, that hasn't occurred yet. But I know the debate is starting. The BMJ Careers had an article about it a few weeks ago. Question mark, should we have physicians on surgical wards? So I think that is starting. Uh, obviously, as far as our specialty is concerned, you know, we're looking to maybe go outside the operating room a little bit more than we have been. Uh, we know critical care has already done that. So um, I think there is some work to be done in getting that cover, in looking after these patients, understanding the medical problems, which, you know, I think you've got to be pretty blunt. I think as anaesthetists, we're good at physiology but we're not very good at a lot of the aspects of geriatric medicine that geriatricians are good at. And, and a lot of those are social needs, cognitive impairment, delirium assessment, et cetera, et cetera, which we are not very good at. Uh, and maybe, you know, that should be in the curriculum in the future. As you say, you've made some interesting points there about 
how we might improve as as clinicians and also the fact that recommendations were made from this report in 2010 and maybe we've still got quite a way to go to really achieving them. Um, there was a, another recent project that, I, again, I know you were involved was with that was examining care of elderly patients. That was the National Hip Fracture Database Anesthetic Sprint Audit of Practice, which was carried out in 2013 with initial results published this year. Could you describe the aims of that project for me? Yeah, the aims of that project uh, really were uh, to try and set a or try and audit what was actually going on in, in England and Wales, because we really had no idea what was happening. Um, as on a personal level, and, and again with a, a co-worker that I've done a lot of work with, Stuart White and Brian, we've been, you know, this bloody silly question about which is the best anaesthetic technique is one of them, okay, and, and we had a sort of road to Damascus moment a few years ago thinking that we could never answer it by doing a, an RCT. What we needed to do was to find out actually what was happening by doing an audit. And we set some standards, and I, I must ex agree that I didn't agree with a lot of the standards, although I set them. Okay, that's another question, another story. But what we wanted to do was ask anaesthetists if they could prospectively look at some aspects of what they were doing for hip fracture patients. And there were some things that we were particularly concerned about. One of them was the level of blood pressure during operations. And the other one was the incidence maybe of uh, a problem that occurs when cemented prostheses are put into elderly patients. So those were two very, very important aspects. What our data showed, and we, we got data on over 11,000 patients, which was a fantastic return from, from Anesthesia UK, a fantastic team effort, is that really, I think you could say it's pretty much like chaos theory out there. People are doing, people are doing all sorts of things. And you can have very great geographical variations in the country as to about um, what is happening. So a good example would be uh, nerve blocks. Okay, so we've talked about frailty and we've talked about aspects of cognitive function. Well, we know, and the, the, the data is eons old. If you do a nerve block, you reduce morphine and opioid requirements uh, and the patients do better. Okay, so level one Cochrane evidence to do a nerve block. Only 50% of our patients in our study got a nerve block. So, you know, you've really got to ask yourself then, we've got a long way to go, actually. Uh, and I think what ASAP showed me and confirmed to me, and even in my own hospital it confirmed to me, that we've been deluding ourselves, actually, that we think we've been doing a good job. And even more frightening than that, um, and we now have the outcome data, so this is very, very early data, and Stuart has been analysing it, is that if you look at blood pressure, and again, our study was observational, so all it is is an anaesthetist writing down his blood pressure. It's one, one low result, isn't it? You write it down. You probably took part in it, and then you put the data in. Well, we found that 30% of patients in our study at one point during the whole procedure, had a mean arterial pressure of less than 55. Okay. Now, if you look at Dan Sesler's Cleveland Clinic study last year, which looked, again, observational at the level which they think AKI and significant myocardial injury occurs in older patients having non-cardiac surgery, the magic number is 55. Okay, mean arterial 55. 30% of all our hip fracture patients, and again, you're thinking, well, this is enthusiastic anaesthetists who are collecting this data. So this is people who really want to get involved, okay? 
So it's probably worse in patients, places where they don't want to get involved. 30% of 55. Now, I can tell you this because I know it's been presented at a recent meeting. If you look at five-day mortality, that level of 55 is highly, highly, highly significant for mortality. Okay, they're more likely to fall off the perch if your blood pressure is dropped. So again, we've got a long way to go and to tighten up, I think. Absolutely. And, and perhaps it's, it's not a, an operation or a patient population that's achieved much um, attention in the past. It's maybe not a, a very innovative surgery and therefore hasn't had quite the same focus. But these sort of bridge projects would potentially do that and bring up the whole level of care countrywide. Yeah, that's the whole idea that we would basically do the sort of study design would be, um, and we're introducing a protocol for the bone cement problem. So you'd introduce it and then measure it again. So it's again, it's a population type study. You know, it's not an RCT, it's not an observational study, but it's a, it's a sort of protocol driven change. There is a name, there's a fancy name for it. I know that Ian Moppet knows what that fancy name is, but I don't. And it's a valid technique. And I think that, you know, Again, going back to the, the frailty issue, you may know that we predicted, we, we remodelled hip fractures, we predicted in 2007 that by 2030 the numbers would double. We are exactly on that trajectory at the moment. So, for an example, the busiest hospital in Britain is Leicester Royal Infirmary, at the moment does 1,000 hip fractures a year. By 2030 it will be 2,000. Now, just take a step back and think, that's six every day. So you've got to have a hospital that is dealing with six hip fractures every single day coming in the front door. You've got to have a pretty good system for sorting that out. Uh, and I always say to our, my trainees now that if you want to get into, you know, sell yourself for a consultant job, sell yourself as someone who's interested in older people, because that is what most of you are going to be doing in your consultant careers. I mean, that's a stark reality. And I think not only were the patients identified in, in this uh, audit elderly, I also noticed that they frequently had multiple comorbidities or multiple medications, and that, that came out as well. So they were definitely within this frail population that we really need to tighten up our management on and think about how we improve both their pre, intra and post-operative care, really. I mean, if, if people listening to this who may be doing exams, I don't know, I mean, maybe doing the final exam, um, it's just some, some simple numbers. It's worth quoting if you're in a viva. I mean, uh, there are three times as many people over 90 now as there were in 1984 in England and Wales. There are half a million people over 90. Okay, so that's a phenomenal change. So 150,000 to over 500,000 people over 90. I mean, you know, it's not unusual now, is it, to anaesthetise people in their 90s? Well, when I qualified, it certainly was. Okay, so that is sort of statistic that needs to be put into little essays and things. Moving on from uh, this discussion about morbidity and mortality in this group of patients and, and improving interoperative care, is there much research uh, about what preoperative interventions might be effective in reducing these risks? There's not, there is, there's not very much. The, 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 it's, the field is pretty light. Um, if you look at elective care, if you look at elective surgery, there, there's one particular hospital which is pretty good at the whole package and that's St Thomas's and Guy's and that's the POPs program, proactive care of the older per, uh, person undergoing surgery. Now that is for elective care and that's, that's mainly, I think they've concentrated on vascular, 
Again, you can think of major, you know, the big groups of surgery in this age group are, are vascular, uh, major colorectal, and I think orthopedics. That does make a difference. But again, that really is more around the comprehensive geriatric assessment and getting everything in place for them to go home, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think also that you may be referring to the concept of pre, it's, it's a pretty horrible name, or term, prehabilitation, which is, I think, trying to maybe alter the inverted commas frail state by modifying it before someone comes for surgery. Now, the evidence or the amounts of studies for that is not great. It's very, very thin, the evidence base. Um, I know that there, there has been a study in Southampton on cancer chemotherapy patients, which showed some benefit. From my own point of view, I think as a specialty, we are, we are people who haven't promoted prehabilitation. So that it really does annoy me that we always say to people, oh, after your operation, you've got to sort of try and walk and try and get up and going. What we never say is, you know, well, what does the GP say when they come to their, you know, for their hip or whatever operation? Why don't you just try and do a bit more um, before you have this surgery? Because the chances are you might do a little bit better. That seems to me intuitively obvious because we know that, you know, uh, aerobic performance declines quite dramatically as you get older. Not a lot you can do about it. But I think the concept of prehabilitation is something that we should embrace more. And again, again, we need the studies. You know, there aren't very many out there. But I think as far as frailty is concerned, there is some pretty good evidence from the older person's literature that things like muscle strengthening is very beneficial so that um, doing very light weights, low repetitions will maintain your muscle mass, which is important if you're going to survive complex surgery. Yeah. So again, areas for improvement and also areas that really need some more research because we just don't have the evidence there for, for many of these interventions. But perhaps the one thing we can say at the moment is that a multidisciplinary approach is is the key to helping these patients have a, a good outcome and a successful return to their prior functioning. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think you you have to have the, the physicians, the surgeons and the anaesthetists. The, to me, the, big, you know, the, the thing that I was, I'm horrified and I suspect a lot of uh, anaesthetic anaesthetists are is the amount of prescription medicines are on. I think one of the really important functions that the healthcare, the elderly people do is, is medicines reviews. I think that is absolutely so important to do a medicines review as soon as a patient comes in, especially an emergency patient. Because, you know, do they really need these beta blockers? Do they really need these calcium channel blockers, which have caused them to fall over in the first place? Okay, so I think we're going to bring the discussion to a close now. I think it's a really, really interesting topic. And as you say, it's something that's going to become more and more part of our practice over the coming years. Today, we've, we've discussed some of the main points of your article, the, the fact that these frail patients have often been neglected in healthcare planning and, and research, but that finally there seems to be more of a focus coming onto these patients and hopefully that will lead to improvements in their outcomes. So I'd recommend listeners to read the full article and it just leaves me to say thank you very much, Dr. Griffiths. Thank you very much. And goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Seek Up podcast.